someone has said that music is the universal language, that it is there for us to appreciate and to experience, that it does not need even words at times to communicate. But if music is the universal language, then so is suffering. For regardless of race or creed or color, regardless of economic status, suffering affects us all. All of us have known the trials and the tribulations of pain and sorrow and separation and suffering. Jesus writes in this book of Revelation, chapter 2, to the suffering church, to a church that is immersed in suffering. Warren Wiersbe says that the cross is the greatest evidence that suffering in the will of God will bring glory. The cross is the greatest evidence that suffering in the will of God will bring glory. If you have found Revelation chapter 2, I'm going to ask you to stand if you would as we read the Word of God, the words of Jesus spoken to John and then to the church at Smyrna. Verse 8, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, let us hear what the Spirit says to the church. Lord Jesus, once again, come into our presence. Walk by your Spirit up and down these aisles. Move into every pew. Take hold of every heart. Open every ear that we might hear what you are trying to say to us. Help us to understand and comprehend what it means to you when a church endures persecution and suffering. Remind us of truth from your word, Father. Let us not walk out of this place comfortable and convenient in our Christianity. Shake us from within. Grasp our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus to understand what you have called us to. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is writing to the church four very compact and comprehensive verses, the shortest of all the letters to the church. Jesus does not give a word of condemnation to this church. 
All of his words are words of, words of praise. Ron Dunn was asked one time, Brother Dunn, why do you think the church in America has not undergone persecution? We read about in the world, in fact, statistics and church historians tell us that more people have been martyred for the Christian faith in this century than in all other centuries combined. And so they asked Brother Dunn, they said, Brother Dunn, why? Is it because 85% of all mission money comes out of America and without us as American Christians, missions would go down the tubes? Is it because we have printed so many Bibles and we have distributed Bibles around the world? Is it because of our great churches and our great doctrine and our religious television and all our radio stations? Is that why God has not sent persecution to the church in America? And Ron said, no, I don't think that's it. He said, I think the reason that God has not sent persecution to the church in America is that we are not made out of the stuff of which martyrs are made. We don't understand suffering. Good gracious, we think suffering is when the thermostat's not working right in the church. You know, my idea of roughing it is going to Ramada Inn and having black and white television. My kids, Daddy, why is that show in gray? Why, why isn't it in color? You know, why? I mean, we think that's roughing it. We think suffering is wearing an old pair of shoes that, that may be too loose or too tight. You know, suffering is having to stand in a line somewhere. Suffering is being a little inconvenienced. We don't understand what suffering is. I cannot identify personally with what some of my brothers and sisters in Christ are going through behind the Iron Curtain. I can't identify with what has happened to the church in China. I can't identify with what has happened to the church in Russia. I don't understand that. I don't comprehend it because I've never known that kind of suffering. And neither have you. Say, oh, well, we've had some rough times. We've had some lean days in our church. We've had some lean days in our family. Friends, we have not had suffering like the church at Smyrna had it. We don't understand it. But I do believe this. I believe Billy Graham's wife was right. If God doesn't judge America, he owes an apology to Sodom and Gomorrah. We are living in a time when suffering, I believe, is going to increase. Several men from our church uh, went with uh, Kevin and I this past week to a conference to hear one of the great preachers in America spend a day just talking about uh, what's happening and integrity in the church and things like that. And he made an interesting observation. He said, you know, Eastern Europe is moving toward Christ and America is moving away from Christ. And he made this observation that the leading scientist of Russia with three earned PhDs two years ago voted the most outstanding scientific mind in all of Russia was an atheist and he studied on his own and came to the conclusion that God created heaven and earth. No Bible, no reference to the Word of God, and he came to visit this country, went to California, and the week he was in California, the California Department of Education determined that any college that offers a master's degree in science that teaches creation can no longer offer a master's degree because it's not educationally sound principles. 
And this Russian with three PhDs who has since become a believer wrote to the chairman of the Department of Education for the state of California and said, Sir, there is more freedom in Russia than there is in California. Ladies and gentlemen, we don't understand suffering, but get ready. We're going to. It's not going to be easy much longer for the church. In fact, if we are salt and light, if we are what God called us to be in a society of darkness and in a society of corruption, we must run counterculture to our world. We run in an opposing fashion. We stand against all of that, and when we do that, that brings about suffering. You cannot look at Supreme Court decisions. You cannot look at lower court decisions. You cannot read the bills that are being produced by our legislatures today and come to any other conclusion except this country is moving away from its Judeo-Christian ethic. And when that happens, the church is going to suffer. And when that happens, we're going to find out who the church is. The church is not going to be the folks that just show up. The church is not going to be the people who come for convenience or for social reasons or for cultural reasons or because of expectations. The folks who come to church when the church is suffering are the folks who are ready to suffer for the church and for Christ. Jesus Christ is the correspondent, and he writes to this church, and he says, I was dead. The only thing Jesus ever was was dead. And he says, but I have come to life. Jesus said, I was dead, but I have come to life. I have overcome death, hell, and the grave. Now here's what Jesus is saying in verse 8. Jesus is saying, I was here before anything you fear ever existed. And I will be here after everything you fear is long gone. Folks, let me tell you something. All that you are scared of, all that you are fearful of, all that brings anxiety to your heart and to your soul, all of that, Jesus said, I was here before it, and I'll be here after it. Look to me. Now, although you and I have not suffered like we understand this church at Smyrna suffered, I can tell you this, all of us have had our trials. And I will tell you, and I think you would agree, you learned a lot more in your trials than you did in your triumphs. I don't learn much when I'm on top. Now, if we got just real God honest this morning, we don't pray much when we're on top. We don't seek God much when we're on top. Because when we're on top, God is good and all is right in heaven and earth and hallelujah, praise the Lord, everything's going good. But you let the rug get pulled out and you let the bottom come and all of a sudden everybody gets serious about God and that's when God teaches us. We don't learn much when we're sprouting branches. We learn when God's pruning our branches. And what I have learned in the trials of my life have been greater lessons than I ever learned on the mountaintop. Deuteronomy chapter 8 says that God led you in the wilderness to humble you and to test you and to show you what was in your heart to see whether or not you would obey the commands of God or not. And one of the reasons why God allows us to suffer and allows the church to go through persecution is to show us what's in our heart. To show us where the true church is. He is the correspondent to the church. He is writing to the church and he writes to this city, Smyrna. It's 35 miles north of Ephesus. There was a great seaport there. In fact, it was the port of fragrance. The word Smyrna comes from the word myrrh. 
Myrrh is a leaf that is crushed, and when it is crushed, it brings forth a great fragrance. This city was known for its myrrh trade, its fragrant trade. They were in the perfume business. The Hebrew word mirah is the root for the name Miriam and Mary. Myrrh was used in the time of Christ, in the life of Christ, three times. At his birth, they brought him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. On the cross, the wine was mixed with myrrh, and at his death, his body was prepared with myrrh. Jesus Christ understood the meaning of the word myrrh. He understood suffering. This church was located in a great political and economic city. This city was the leader in emperor worship. They had temples there to Apollos and to Zeus and to Aphrodite. And in the middle of all this godliness and godlessness and all of these cults and all these other religions, there sat a little group of Christians who served the King of kings and Lord of lords. They were poverty-stricken because all the trade guilds were tied to idols. And to be involved in a trade guild meant that you had to worship an idol and give a part of your income to the idol. So for the Christian to do that, he had to worship some other god besides God. And the Christians wouldn't do it so they couldn't get a job. So, destitute, bankrupt, homeless... These Christians in the middle of a society that was persecuting them in this city of Smyrna, they found themselves hearing a sweet word from the Lord. The church was an interesting church. If you read these verses, verses 8 through 11, you'll notice that Jesus does not at one time say anything bad about them. And never does he come and say, well, I'm going to tell you what, folks. I'm fixing to hitch my britches and go down there and clear me out a spot and pitch a fit, and I'm going to get rid of all those people that are bothering you. Don't you find us praying like that sometimes? Anytime we have opposition, we pray, now, Lord, just get rid of all our opposition. Jesus never said he's going to get rid of the opposition. Jesus said, I'm going to take care of your opposition by encouraging you. So Jesus comes and encourages this church. This church was being crushed. There was a fragrance that was coming out of them because they were being crushed. Listen, a crushed church is always a fragrant church. And persecution always brings purification. Anytime you want the church to be purified, you know, we pray for the church to be holy and, and to be purified. And we say, Lord, just make us a holy people. Well, folks, I'll tell you how he'll do it through persecution. He'll cleanse out of us all that is not of Him through suffering and persecution. He will chip away at us. A lady came up to me after the service this morning and said, you know, I just feel like when I come to church sometimes that God's just chipping off a piece of me every time I come. You know what? That's exactly what ought to happen when we come to church. A little bit of us is left at the altar, and a little more of Jesus is picked up at the altar. The suffering church, this church suffered immensely, and they were being slandered by the Jews. He said, these folks say they're Jews, and they're not. And this church was poverty-stricken. They were slandered by the Jews, and then on the other hand, they were being slaughtered by the Romans. Now, I haven't found a conference to go to yet on how to be a Smyrna church. 
Nobody's planning all these conferences. I mean, you turn on religious television and you see all these brochures and all these folks have got these great conferences planned on health and wealth gospel and how Jesus can be your religious bellhop and you sit by your bed with your Bible and ring your little ecclesiastical bell that costs you $500 donation to this group and God will come down to heaven and do everything you ask him to do. You know what? The health and wealth gospel is not selling in third world countries. It's hard to tell believers who don't even know where their next meal is coming from if you trust Jesus. God will put money in your bank and a Cadillac in your garage when they don't even know if they're going to eat tomorrow. We are the height of hypocrisy in this country. We don't even understand in this country what the church of Jesus Christ is all about. And it is a nauseating aroma in the nose of God for health and wealth theology to come across the tubes. And we have God's money being spent for that when Christian believers can't even eat in most of the world. And here we've got this suffering church overwhelmed by what's going on. And the church in America, as we stand and we sing about the reproach of the cross and we close our hymn book and go home and sit down in front of our TV and eat our meal and pretend that all is well with the world. Nothing wrong with any of us that a little suffering wouldn't cure. Trials, tribulations, we sing to the old rugged cross, I will ever be true. It's shame and reproach gladly bear. And then we close that hymnal and stick it in the pew rack and forget about it. Folks, I'm going to tell you something. In my humble and accurate opinion, which I highly respect, <laughs> folks that are preaching that Jesus Christ will make you healthy, wealthy, and rich or of the synagogue of Satan. They do not know the Word of God. It's kind of hard to tell the Apostle Paul five seconds before his head went off. Paul, if you had just named it and claimed it, you wouldn't have been in this prison. It's hard to tell Jim Elliot, who was eaten by cannibals in South America, while well, Brother Elliot, if you just had more faith, God would have delivered you miraculously from that situation. It's hard to tell somebody that loves God and walks with God who's dying of cancer. Well, the problem with you is you just don't love God enough. My friends, that's not what this book says. This book says that the church will undergo suffering. Following Jesus is a bed of roses because it's got thorns and it hurts. There's no easy road to the cross. Salvation is free, but it's not cheap. It cost us our very lives. And Jesus writes to this church and he gives them a con commendation in verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Verse 9 is a verse of unqualified praise. He says, I know. That little word is oidai in the Greek, O-I-D-A, and it means to know by experience. What Jesus was saying is, you don't have to tell me about your troubles. I've been there. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Have you ever prayed, Lord, you just don't understand what I'm going through? Jesus says, I know 
what you're going through experientially. He is not some distant deity that cannot identify. Jesus is not offering to this church sympathy. He is offering to them the security of his presence. Robert Murray McShane said, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. These people were facing persecution, and they had a trinity of troubles. Notice, if you will, they had tribulation, they had poverty, and they had blasphemy. The word tribulation is thelipsis. It means pressure and agony unto death. Pressure and agony unto death. There was a constant aggressive pressure. It is a word picture of a stone rolling across leaves and crushing them or rolling across grapes and squeezing the life out of the grapes. This church was having the very life squeezed out of it. They didn't come to business meeting and say, well, we'd now like to announce those that have lettered out of our church. They came to business meeting and they announced all the people that had been burned at the stake, sawn in two, eaten by lions and killed by gladiators and set on fire to light the Appian Way. When they came together, folks, they came together to talk about people who had died for the faith. When you go to the catacombs in Rome, you will find on many of those graves, deep in those regions under Rome, all in those bodies crushed in and covered over in there, you will find on many of those graves the verse in Revelation chapter 2, He that overcomes will never experience a second death. This church had tribulation. They had poverty. That word poverty means utter vagrancy. These people were out on the street. They were homeless. They had lost everything. Their property had been confiscated. The civil authorities had taken over. But you are rich. How in the world were they rich? They were rich in character and godliness. They were rich in character and godliness. They had nothing, yet they possessed everything. I'll tell you something, folks. When you're rich in Jesus, you got something the world can't take away from you. They almost, it was almost like the Lord just kind of leaned down over heaven and, and just whispered in their ear and said, y'all are in a mess, aren't you? I want to give you a little heavenly inside eternal secret. You're rich where it counts. You see, folks, they were putting their influence and their lives where neither moth nor dust doth corrupt nor decay. They were putting it in eternal things. They were rich. And then he says that they were being blasphemed. That means persecuted. It is a word of religious antagonism. It means that they were being slandered, that there was abusive speech, and he says it was coming from people who said they were Jews. But they weren't really Jews. They were of the synagogue of Satan. Their criticism was coming from the assembly of the adversary. They were trying to add something to the cross. They were trying to say that something else needed to be done besides Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus could identify with the church at Smyrna because he had been blasphemed by the Jews and he had been crucified by the Romans. He knew exactly what they were going through. It was almost as if the church at Smyrna were reliving the life of Christ. 
And then you come to the command in verse 10, and he gives two commands. Fear not and be faithful. Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now there's two things he says. First of all, be fearless. He doesn't say be fearless because you're going to be exempt from suffering. He says be fearless because you're going to have a crown of life. And then he says be faithful. He says be faithful because you've got a promise to live by. You are to be faithful unto death. Now I want you to notice what he didn't say. He left so much unanswered. He didn't say that the sorrow was going to end. He didn't say that the tribulation was going to come to a stop. He didn't say that the blasphemy would be turned around and the Jews would finally realize that the church in Smyrna was right and they were wrong. He didn't say any of that. In fact, he didn't even tell them why they were suffering. Let me tell you a good mark of maturity. If God can trust you with his silence... that you don't have to know. The just shall live by faith. You see, folks, we have a danger in our culture. we got so many seminar saints and conference Christians. You know, Dr. Havner said we've gone from being bookworms to tapeworms. Uh, we've got so many folks that got 10 steps to this and 12 steps to that and 15 principles for this and 9 points for this. Let me tell you something. When all hell breaks loose on your life and when you're suffering, you don't have time to run find a principle. You've got to look for a person. Now, all the principles are fine and all the precepts are fine. And all of our notebooks and our seminars and our conferences and our how-to books, all that's great. But I'm going to tell you something. Every one of us, if we are going to be formed into the image of God, there is going to come a day, listen, there is going to come a day when all your notebooks and all your conferences and all your seminars aren't going to do any good and it's going to be a person you're going to look for then. And that person's going to be Jesus Christ. It's not going to be any man on this earth. Folks, we don't live by explanations. We live by promises of a person. You see, it's too easy to package the Christian life. Well, if you do these five things, then God will bless you. When you're immersed in suffering, you don't get that. I guarantee you the church in China doesn't have a lot of material that they're trying to memorize. I guarantee you the church in Russia doesn't have certificates from seminars and conferences that they've attended. But I've got a funny feeling that those folks may know the person of Jesus better than we do. Because that's all they've got to cling to. I met a man who met a pastor in Russia who had pastored a church for five years and all he had was the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Been preaching to his people for five years from the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Poor old people, they didn't have all the doctrines down. Wonder what they did. They didn't have any material coming to them from Nashville. What they had was a warm love for the person of Jesus. That's what they had. He said, 
Do not fear. That Greek word is phobia. Phobeo is the term that is used here. And it means don't run away. Don't be terrified. We fear men too much and we fear God too little. He says, do not fear you of what you are about to suffer. And then he says that they will be tested and that they will have tribulation for 10 days. It is a definite time of testing. But he says, don't fear. Now I want you to look at these folks. They had difficulties. They had tribulation. They had destitution. They were in poverty. They had defamation. They had been blasphemed. And now Jesus says, and guess what? To top it all off, you're going to die. Poor old Jesus, he just didn't know how to get church members. He should have gone to a church growth school. Folks, the church has always grown more in persecution than it has in prosperity. Always. Always has grown more in persecution than it has in prosperity. And here's what he says. He says, I will give you the crown of life. See, we ought to praise Him in every pain. We ought to bless Him in every burden. We ought to sing in every sorrow. And we ought to delight in every discipline. There are three things I want you to remember. Number one, God knows what you're going through. If you are suffering, if you're going through a trial right now, and you think nobody else understands what you're going through, I want to tell you, one person knows, God. God knows what you're going through. And after all, that's the only one that matters anyway. He's the only one that can understand. You see, people come to me sometimes and they say, I've got this problem, and I can't identify with it. Because I don't understand. I've never had that problem. I've never been in that situation. But I know somebody who knows how to identify with you. God knows. Secondly, if things don't change, Jesus Christ will be your fortress. If things don't change, Jesus Christ will be your fortress. He's the one you can run to. He's the one that you can find your security in. And thirdly, if things get worse, He will see you through. If things get worse, He will see you through. Matthew Henry said, God can raise up many faithful ministries out of the ashes of one. Dr. Havner said, Sometimes God snuffs out our brightest star so that we can see His eternal light. The suffering church. The persecuted church. Something about martyrs. You can bind them, you can burn them, and you can beat them, but they seem to multiply. When the United States bombed Libya, the immediate reaction of Colonel Gaddafi was to seek revenge. All of our people around the world, Americans around the world, were put on alert at that point because we knew that we were dealing with a madman. See, madman is the world's term for demon-possessed. We knew we were dealing with a man that we didn't know how he would react. During that time, right after that bombing of, of Libya and right after the bombing of Gaddafi's home and headquarters, the word reached through our intelligence agency to people in that part of the world, particularly in Africa, that on July 4th of that year, on America's great, proud, patriotic holiday, that Gaddafi was sending terrorists around the world 
and particularly to Kenya and other areas, to find Westerners, particularly Americans, and to kill them in retaliation for what America had done to him. The word came on July 1st. Almost every American in Kenya left. They either went to the United States Embassy or they left the country and flew to Europe to get out of the way, to get as far removed from Gaddafi's hitmen as they could. There was a crusade planned in Mombasa, Kenya, the Jesus in Action Crusade. There was a platform that had been built on the landing area where the ferry boats crossed from the island to the mainland where thousands and thousands and thousands of people every day took that ferry, 700 to 1,000 at a time, taking the ferry to go to the mainland. And right there was a platform built for a crusade that was sponsored by our Southern Baptist missionaries and particularly by Dr. Ralph Bethay. They began to think about leaving. Although the crusade had been planned, Ralph had been raised with a rational mindset. He was a child of an American doctor. He knew smart is smart and stupid is stupid. And if somebody's coming after you, you get out. And in the process of sharing over those few days, he ran into a Muslim mullah that he had talked to very often. A mullah is the head of one of their local temples. And the Muslim mullah said, well, I guess you're going to leave, aren't you? And he said, well, I don't know. And we don't know what we're going to do yet. He said, well, after all, missionary, your faith is not worth dying for, is it? And Ralph said at that point, I realized what I had to do. On July 4th, knowing that there were 30 Gaddafi terrorists in Mubasa, Kenya, Ralph Bethay began a trek across a ferry coming with some national pastors, and they were going to that point to preach the gospel. As they approached that land, the colonel's leader screamed out, Is Ralph Bethay on that ferry? And the national pastors, being kind and gracious, and nationals are just wonderful people, the national pastor said, He's right here! He's right here! Ralph said, at that point, I didn't have to pray about God's will. I knew what God's will was. Swim, sucker, swim. <laughs> the captain of the boat was a Muslim. Those men from Gaddafi came on board that boat, and they had in one hand these sticks that were like policeman sticks, and they were wood wrapped in steel. And in the other hand, they had a puma, which is like a machete. 30 of them. They walked up to him and they said, Missionary, are you preaching Jesus? Do you plan to go over there on that hill and preach Jesus today? He said, Well, yes, I was kind of planning on doing that. And he said, Fear began to overwhelm me and I began to wonder, you know, and I began to think this is it. My life is gone. And he said, that captain reached over and grabbed him by the shirt and he pulled him up and he said, Missionary, are you prepared to die? Ralph said, as he let go of me and they shoved me down to the ground, he said, I knelt down there on that ground and those nationals surrounded me. He said, I expected that the next thing I would feel would be that steel club crashing through my skull or my blood being spilled out as that bayonet went through me. He said, instead, I felt tears falling on the back of my neck. 
And as he looked up, those men trained by a demon-possessed lunatic were crying. And they said, tell us about this Esau. And folks, I want you to know that my cousin, as crazy as he is, preached for eight hours with 30 trained terrorists guarding him so he could preach the gospel. And 2,158 Muslims prayed to receive Christ that day. But I'm going to tell you something. Jesus would have been just as real if they'd have killed him that day. Not everybody has been delivered from the sword. Hebrews talks about those that have been sawn asunder and those that have been boiled and those that have been burned. And it says of them, men of whom the world was not worthy. I wonder if the Lord Jesus would come down in this place this morning and would ask us, Sherwood Baptist Church, are you ready to die for me today? You say, well, sure, we could say that because it's not going to happen. I mean, we live in the land of the free and the home of the brave. So let's ask the question he probably would ask. Sherwood Baptist Church, are you ready to live for me today? Because, folks, I am convinced of this. Until we are ready to die for Jesus, we are never ready to live for Jesus. And if we are not faithful unto death, why even get on the train if we don't plan to go to the final destination. If we plan to jump ship, better to do it now than to do it when the persecution begins. Better to state where we are and to state our lack of commitment now than to get in the middle of it and for the world to look at the church and see if the church exemplifies Jesus and we throw the white flag up and say, we give up, just don't hurt us anymore. I take you back to what Ron Dunn said. I'm not sure we're the stuff of which martyrs are made. Ladies and gentlemen, there could come a day in our lifetime when we're going to have to find out what stuff we're made of. And then it won't matter about our faithfulness and our attendance and all the doctrines that we've memorized. It'll matter then if we're committed to the person of Jesus Christ and faithful unto death. Are you the stuff of which a martyr is made? Could Jesus trust you this morning with suffering could he allow persecution to come to bear on your life and you would stand strong and although the world would think they've had it, you could hear the still small voice of the Savior saying, 
but you are rich. Rich. Let's stand together with heads bowed and eyes closed. I'm going to ask you to very quietly, very reverently, reach into the hymn rack and find number 76. And with your head still bowed and your eyes still closed, where are you today? You're looking for a church home. Are you ready to be a part of the church that God wants us to be? You come here this morning and you don't know Christ. You've never had a personal relationship with Him. So a little cost me too much to follow Christ. That, that message scared me. Friend, the sufferings of this world are not to be compared with the suffering of eternal separation from God in hell. The suffering that you'll experience in this life is temporary and brief. It is fleeting. And today you can walk out of this room with your sins either pardoned at Calvary or punished in hell. You have an opportunity this morning to become a part of something bigger than your own life, the body of Christ set aside for the glorification and honor of Jesus Christ. You can do that by asking Christ into your life this morning. There are going to be men down here at the front that will help you to make that decision. They'll show you how you can pray and ask Christ to come into your heart. Now, church member, let me ask you. As we prepare to sing this song, you're going to be singing, My Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. For thee all the folly of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior thou art, if ever I love thee, my Jesus tis now. Can you honestly say this morning, there's ever been a time that I love Jesus. It's right now. Would you make a decision that would put yourself in that position? I'm going to pray. Ron's going to lead us as we sing. The hymn is number 76. If you cannot sing that with a pure heart, then maybe you need to come this morning to kneel in prayer or talk to one of these staff members. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would now manifest yourself in this place. During this invitation, let none stand still that need to move. Let none move that need to stand still. Only what you desire, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.